try an experimental recording as well. So Hi guys. Hi guys. Uh, we are on. Um, welcome on Wednesday, September the 28th or 9th. I don't know what date it is. Um, my name is Dan Taylor and we are on the ECDEV network on Clubhouse. We have a great conversation today with my uh, co-hosts, Lara Fritz and Bob Manhas, and uh, special guests, and it's going to be a great chat. Um, I'm the Economic Development Catalyst for the Town of Innisfil, as well. I'm a strategic advisor and guide to those in the profession. So basically, I help people with performance, personal, professional, and what I like to say most uh, importantly, economic development. I help people actually get tangible results. I'm going to turn it over to you, Bob. And uh, for those that are listening to me, I'm walking the streets today in downtown Toronto, so it may be a bit noisy. Bob, you're on. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. I love when Dan listens live from the outside world because it makes me question the decisions I make not to have a career like Dan. So it's called envy. Welcome, everyone, to the uh, Economic Development EcDev Network Clubhouse Room. We're so glad that you've joined us today. Uh, my name is Bob Minhas. As Dan mentioned, I'm one of the co-hosts for today, along with Lara Fritz, who I'll turn over to introduce herself shortly, and of course, Dan Taylor. Uh, we started this room because we wanted to start really creating those hallway conversations among EcDev professionals that you tend to find at events and really start looking at how are we sort of supporting each other and helping each other build uh, not only our skill set but sort of what we're bringing to each of our communities. So really glad to have you here. Our room is typically filled with people from all over North America and we're starting to see some folks join us from overseas. So uh, I'm going to start with the plus button on the bottom for those of you that are fairly new to the room. Uh, if you look at the bottom of the screen you'll see a plus icon. If you click that, or if you press that, I should say, it'll allow you to invite any colleagues or, or family members, ex-boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever you want, uh, if you think that the conversation today will be super, super interesting for them as well. And today we are talking about reimagining public assets with Dali Padella, so I'm excited to have you here as well. On the bottom of the screen, for our friends who may join us in the audience, you'll see, it. well, actually, we have no one in the audience, but for those that may go back to the audience instead of the stage, you'll see a hand icon over a notepad. If you press that, that's raising your hand. That'll allow myself, Lara, or Dan to bring you on stage to participate in the conversation. And for everyone who is currently on the stage, including some of our new folks, welcome. Uh, when you're on the stage, your mic can go live. You'll see an option to mute your mic or unmute your mic. When you unmute your mic, you're live to the audience here. You can uh, ask a question, create a, or put in a share. Uh, and then all we ask is when you're done, do a little bit of a sign off. So at the end, you're simply saying, this is Bob and I'm done speaking. That lets other folks know when they can chime in. But believe it or not, it's actually a pretty good pretty cool accessibility tool for those who are actually participating here on Clubhouse, but not listening on the actual Clubhouse app. So it's really cool to have. And then finally, one cool tip, if you hear something you really enjoy, uh, be sure to flash your mic on and off super quickly. That represents clapping. And everybody on this stage is a professional what they do be sure to follow this is how we really want to build and integrate our networks here in the community um, check out all the names check out all the bios and and follow people and, and encourage others to follow them as well that's all I have to share today I'd love to turn it over to Lara please feel free to introduce yourself and then maybe you can introduce Della as well that would be great. Um, I'm Laura Fritz. I am an economic development professional with over 25 years of experience helping communities and women and BIPOC entrepreneurs uh, continue to grow and 
add to the vitality of our communities. And I know Dan, you normally introduce yourself next. Um, I, I did, so I don't want to be too long-winded. Oh, right. I am happy to be uh, where I once led. I'm now being led by Lara and Bob. So I'm so happy to be supported by those guys. Back over to you, Lara. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much, Dan. And Della, why don't you share a little bit about your background and the current work you're doing? Okay, sure. Um, they managed to recruit a weirdo for this one, so here I am. Uh, my name's Della Rucker. I'm actually a uh, an urban planner and an economic developer by training and certification. So I hold my CFD in addition to holding a um, an AICP, which is the planner certification. Um, over, I was a consultant to local governments and agencies and the like for about 20 years. And then about five or 10 years ago, I started shifting away from that because I, I was looking for new solutions. It didn't feel like the things that we were working with um, really were meeting the needs that I wanted to, to, to focus on. And so since then, I've been sort of on an entrepreneurial journey. So I have two platforms. Actually, I have three. Um, so I have a, I divide my work into what I call thinking and doing. The thinking platform is the Wise Economy Workshop that has um, blogs and books and video and all sorts of things um, really focused on trying to broaden that conversation and look at how a changing world requires us to look different, work differently. I'm also the COO of two companies, one of which is focused on um, experiential, leveraging experiential learning in college students to benefit communities. And the other one is a virtual super hub for what we call new, new, new majority founders who are, and that's typically black or um, Latinx, um, folks that have been underrepresented historically. So um, I'm the only white person on the crew there, and I love it. So, so that's the the. It's not a very good elevator pitch, but you know that's that's about as tight as I can get. Oh, that's perfect. And Dan, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, actually, I have too many questions. So, um, before I get into the uh, the official programming, I was gonna ask you how you. Um, not how you balance, but how your brain is divided being economic development and planner. So let's start there. Maybe you could elaborate and you wear s some other hats too. How do you, not how do you keep <laughs> your head straight, but uh, uh, well, tell us how that all works. That's fascinating. It's it's ironic that you, you mentioned keeping my head straight because I'm having a, uh, I'm having periodic bouts of vertigo. So I don't feel like my head's on straight at the moment at all. Um, so, so for me going into planning, um, I was really going into planning more with an economic development and particularly a community revitalization um, lens. Lara and I have actually known each other for far longer than either of us is probably willing to admit. I mean, Way we're, too we're long. <laughs> it's been too long. Well, when you talk about long? numbers, it's been too long, but it's never oh, yeah. long enough. Yes, yes. So, um, uh, back of the Sorry? <laughs> I think that's what I thought. I thought you were saying it's been too long. I've had enough. This is it. How do I? How do I? No, yeah. no, never too much, Adela. Yeah. 
okay. Um, so Laura, back a, a gazillion years ago, was an executive director for a Main Street program in Green Bay, Wisconsin. I was on the board of that organization, even though I was only like 25, 26. I mean, I was way too young to be to be in any kind of position like that. But I was also the only historic preservation person in town. So um, that was another piece of my earlier career. So, so Laura and I, we go back a long way. But to answer your question about the integration, I'm trying to see this more and more. When I first started um, talking to planners about economic development or talking about economic development to planners, I got glazed eyes. And over the course of, I'm going to call it the last 10 years or so, that's really been very substantially shifting. I think there's a lot more people who are coming to economic development with at least a grounding and a foundation in planning. Um, and planning doesn't just mean physical design. There are a lot of planners who focus on physical design, streetscape, transportation, all of that. Um, but I'm starting to see much more bleeding through and much more um, planners going into economic development, economic development people having to learn to understand planning. So it's pretty exciting. I love I love uh, watching that all play out. Oh, that's great. And um, I'm, I'm, it's understandable that maybe you're getting vertigo with all those hats that you're wearing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to hear that. I'm, yeah. sure, I'm sure you'll work through it. Oh, um, I'm, I'm still I'm fine. Yeah. No problem. And uh, Lara and Bob, let's uh, file a, a thought that I have, which is a whole planning, economic development, um, synchronicity, uh, at odds conversation for another day. I could, we could I'd go into that right now, but it's a bit off topic. So, um, yeah. Della, you know, how important is it learning from the community about their neighborhood's current strengths, Ooh. challenges, and changes they'd like to see? We'd love to hear your perspective on that. Oh, yeah. Um, I am a... a, a huge and sometimes um, a little over, well, I don't think overly, but I can, I'm very, very, very committed to public. And I don't like the phrase public engagement. It, for me, a lot of it's really about kind of public collaborative decision making. And that's not something that we've ever in, in either field really got taught to do. Economic developers, you know, that was not ever part of the equation that we have to like understand what the regular Joe on the street thinks about X, Y, or C. And planners ostensibly do have that responsibility, but nobody taught them how to do it well. So especially when we're talking about public spaces, I think one of the, the, the big challenges, and, and Laura and I were talking about some stuff we did back in Green Bay, um, it's very easy for us to think that we know what the community wants or needs. And a lot of times the way we ask that, like, you know, we give them a, a simple survey and, you know, let them pick any, any full thing that they, um, that enters their head. We tend to do that a lot because we sort of, we know that we should talk to them, but we sort of assume that um, we really do know best. And invariably, and, and in my career over and over and over again, I've seen the professionals get it wrong. And they get it wrong because they weren't, it's not just that they weren't talking with the community, and I mean the whole community. Um, and they weren't, they weren't really engaging with the whole community and, and 
the whole community didn't feel like it had a stake in what was doing. Oh, that's the, the, the fancy white people hipster park over there. I, I don't go there anymore. So I think that's a, the public engagement piece is, um, you know, the founding and rule uh, communities. Main Street has now taken it urban. And when Dell and I started the On Broadway program, it really was the first time ever they had done an urban program. Um, and now they actually have a whole division that does urban Main Street mm-hmm. programs. Yeah. Jimmy, the only other thing I'd add is um, you said you're in Texas. Um, there is a Texas Main Street program that's extremely strong. And uh, that can be super helpful in terms of um, really rallying my Main Street program that's going to also be focusing on public assets. Uh, you know, like looking at placemaking. Uh, so there's the Canadian Urban Institute that's launching it in partnership mm-hmm. with the Economic Development Council of Ontario here. Um, and the, the great thing about that program um, is that it's offering it for the rural communities. So it's moving away from the Toronto region, uh, which is it does have like Toronto itself has like more than 80 BIAs uh, but mm-hmm. um, now that you know the recovery side of stuff especially for small businesses be getting more tough nowadays it's good to see that they're going to do that for the rural communities cool cool good awesome great 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 uh, addition uh, Della, if you don't mind, I kind of want to go back to, to Laura's initial question. It's been super helpful sort of taking that explanation uh, and putting it here. Um, but, you know, when when you've got that public input and you have an understanding of a history of a community, how important is developing graphic, exciting and accessible and design ideas? How important is that? Does it make these ideas tools for people to buy into uh, or even advocate with this community as a place to live in, do you think? Okay, so I'm just going to lay out my opinion and and I might, other people might disagree with me on this. We Um, love opinions. That's great. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Um, (laughs) My hand gestures and random noises just don't, you know, it's a little weird in this context. Oh, well. My hand Um, gestures are the same. I'm just, I'm making hand gestures and nobody can see me. I'm with you. (laughs) Good deal. Um, I think, I think it's a, I think it's, there's multiple dimensions and it kind of depends, in my opinion, on which dimension you're dealing with. So I'm going to pick a small example and then a bigger example. So for a small example, um, I live in Cincinnati, Ohio, and we have a neighborhood called Walnut Hills that had a very, very small, you know, a quarter of an acre max um, piece of sort of leftover land from where where an alley or a street had come through in sort of a weird fashion. So I had this little triangle. Um, and the CDC the the Community Development Corporation for the area did some very, very modest um, just site improvements and didn't really do, and, and there's no big sign saying here is the wonderful land of Walnut Hills or anything, um, but it met a need. And once people knew through a little bit of social media and probably a lot of people talking to each other, that was then it was busy all the time. It was a very, very, very popular location because of where it is, right in the core of this um, revitalizing community. And it's a multicultural community. Um, 
So, so it really turned into a really neat place, and it's it's very small. It's very, very, very minimal. I think there's some benches, there's a fire pit, there's some little flags overhead, not much. Um, so in that case, there wasn't a whole lot of need to do really super fancy design. On the other hand, in if if you're dealing with a space that maybe is a little, it does. Are you using the space to catalyze some things that are already happening or are you using the space to try to sort of change behavior and make something new and if it's that second one you know you're really trying to change behavior and make something new then i do think yeah the the design elements become super important because you're you're selling the space you're you're um you're bringing people to participate i however this is one of my little pet peeves. Just because you design it, just because you streetscape it, just because you put trees in and planters and big signs and you run a social media campaign and whatever, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to to buy it. Um, to use another Cincinnati example, um, we have a square called Fountain Square, which is like the, the core of the downtown area. People really didn't do things there very much until about 10 years ago when a local development organization made an agreement with the city to handle programming of that space. And the programming, so we're talking about, you know, music, we're talking about an ice skating rink, um, you know, all sorts of things that end up going on in that space that give people the reason to go there. And there's no big banner or sign that says, you know, welcome to Fountain Square or whatever. Um, but it's that programming of activity, that continuous event development, which, which took, at least in the early days, it was a specific individual who was kind of leading that chart. Um, you have to give people a reason to be there. And I think design can help with that, but if all we do is design something really pretty, we could, are still probably sitting on an underused resource. And if you know, if you follow Mitchell Silver, um, who just retired as the um, the commissioner of parks in New York City, he'll he'll talk very very articulately about um, using design to make a place more accessible, more welcoming that is a little bit of a different take than what I assume, at least when you say, um, you know, design, which is about, you know, making it look good, feel exciting, all of that kind of thing. So it doesn't work unless you get, can get the people there, whether the people are coming organically or the people are coming because you're programming events to get them there. And I don't, I don't know. That was a great answer. You may oh, have... Good. You may have answered my question, so I'm going to slightly reframe it. And if there's nothing to add, I'm going to pass it over to Lara. Um, oh, okay. Of, of you know, uh, assets, city-owned assets, um, is is there like a five-star example that you didn't share with us yet, or one that you'd really like to share with mm -hmm. us, or have you pretty well covered it off? I mean, it's it's a different. Every, I, I honestly do think that in this kind of context, everything's, it, it, most of these are unique. Um, you know, Millennium Park in Chicago, there's a, an amazing public space 
I still go there, and this, you know, this has been pushing 20 years now. I still go there any chance I get because it's just such a wonderful, fun, um, beautiful environment. And can I ask you a question? Qu- can I ask you a question about that? I, yeah, I, I, that's a great space. I've, I've been there once with my my family, and the, mm-hmm. the city of Toronto is thinking of doing something similar. Uh, Ooh, uh, mm-hmm. One of the things that I find about city building is I'm wondering if cities are a little too timid to really get developers primarily and even taxpayers to a certain degree in in Toronto Mm -hmm. property tax on a percentage basis is quite low compared to Mm -hmm. to the 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 wealth but I want I don't want to get into that but what I want to get into is how was how was that park funded I know in Toronto it's going to be a multi-billion dollar undertaking and we we pop up condos like mushrooms here yeah. and, and, and we're the fastest growing city in North America. And if ever there was a, an opportunity to extract, not extract, to underwrite uh, lifestyle and community living for those people living in the condos, this is it. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying they're not quite doing it. I don't know that they're maxing out, uh, but yeah. how was how that funded? I'm quite curious. So I don't know exactly in the case of Millennium Park. Um, I know that it was in the works for a really, really long time. Um, and if anybody here knows better, I, I hope you'll, you know, raise your hand. Um, I'm going to switch, though, to a different example, because I think this may be a little more typical. So in the, the case of Fountain Square in Cincinnati, which I um, described a minute ago, it was less about what was needed was less about redesigning the physical space and was more about taking the physical space and making better use of it. Same with the um, the Walnut Hills Triangle that I mentioned before. There's a space there. How do we make this more usable, more accessible, more top of mind for people, give them reasons to come here? Another, so I'm picking all my Ohio examples today. I'm going to blame the vertigo, but you know, whatever. Um, the in, in another part of Cincinnati, um, in the, the suburbs, there is a massive park that, that was a replacement for an airport. And to make that park happen, the city, so in Ohio, we have income taxes. And the city, we have income taxes, we also have property taxes. We've got several kinds of taxes. But property um, earnings tax is a big one. Um, The city of Blue Ash approved, had a popular vote and approved an increase in, I believe it was just in um, earnings tax, to pay for a very massive redo of the site. So I think there always has to be some especially if you're doing anything physical, there has to be some public sector buy-in. And that community that I mentioned, Blue Ash, is, has, has always been very good at being sort of quietly innovative. And so I think that really, there, there was very little fuss over, um, over doing that, that tax proposal. And it all went into public amenities into this park, into a golf course nearby. Um, and that was what people wanted. And I think we forget sometimes, especially in the in the public sector, you get so focused on the people who are yelling and griping and screaming 
that you might don't always realize that there's other people out there who are going, hell yeah, I'll pay another point worth of, of earnings tax to get this, you know, amazing park amenity that is now a show, show, show place for the whole region. Um, so that was kind of a long way around that. But I, I, the public sector does have to step up and take some risks and obviously do that prudently. Um, if you if you just leave it to the private sector, you're not going to get what actually benefits the entire community. And I did a quick Google search, uh, Della, on the Millennium Park. So oh, good. It was originally designed by the city, um, by, mm-hmm. uh, by a really well-known architectural firm. And the estimated cost oh. was $150 million, of which uh-huh. all of the funding was privately raised. Oh, really? Primarily through some really big foundations in Chicago. So... Um, pretty impressive, but yeah. you're right. I mean, some of the public spaces that I've been involved in have been funded through tax increments, where mm-hmm. the new development will support that public space in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in DC, so often um, you see like old firehouses get incorporated mm-hmm. into new housing developments, mm-hmm. um, and so you know, talk about reimagining an asset. <laughs> yeah, 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 so definitely. It, and Jason just um, kindly put up an article about how it was funded. So, um, oh, cool! Thank you. We'll make sure to put that on the LinkedIn page as well. So, awesome. thanks, Jason. Yeah, and anyone on the stage? Do you have another example of, you know, a civic asset that has been converted that you're pretty excited about and would like to share? Or anybody in the audience? Raise your hand. All right, well, let's keep moving then. Yeah. Can I, can I take one second, though? Um, yeah. Part of, I think, what's challenging here is the definition of a public asset. So the examples that I used were all parks or things that could be parks or things that are kind of like parks. Um, but obviously, public assets can be an enormous range of things. It, every single street and every single streetlight is a public asset. Um, buildings that are owned by the municipality or or other organizations that are that have a public-facing um, role, those are public assets. Libraries are public assets. So it's a it's a it's a really big big question. So I just want to make sure I I don't want to be obsessive on park stuff. Um, but you just mentioned with the fire departments being reused, um, you know, that, that definitely fits that uh, definition. Can I do uh, just, it's not quite a segue, but just building on what you said. So my first economic development job was in a very rural area. And, mm-hmm. and I, I was uh, then and still am now, you know, a bit of a student of Richard Florida and the whole idea of quality of place attracts mm-hmm. talent, talent creates opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. We were not a municipality that had many resources. Uh, I was mm-hmm. fortunate enough to focus on a growth opportunity of farm to table, local wine, local mm. food, tourism, all that great stuff. So while our municipality did not end up building a whole lot of quality of place, the private sector did. And, oh, cool. and whether you call it private or public space, I don't think it really matters. It was space that the public 
and activity and uh, sorry, what's the word I'm looking for? Experiences that the yeah. that the community and uh, others could experience. So there, I think there's just lots of ways to skin the cat. That's that's all I really wanted to say. There's another downside, Laura. Am I am I going too far off topic? No. Okay. So there is a da- another downside, and I'm I'm not trying to like sound crazy or anything there is another downside that we have to be aware of when we um when we engage the the when we're going to use public assets and use them for this kind of revitalization purpose and if we're going to do that through the private sector this is kind of acute um not everybody you know not everybody looks and sounds like you all, many of y'all, and me. You know, um, public spaces historically, black neighborhoods that didn't have air conditioning had incredible street life and talking and laughing and singing. And that gets pushed away a lot of times by the way we do revitalize public spaces unless we're really super intentional about it and at the same time the private sector isn't necessarily going to have that full public um, and they want to protect their their investment right so to pick another public space example one of my favorite places is the container park in Las Vegas Nevada so this was this came out of um, the Tony Shea, um, Zappos, downtown Las Vegas revitalization um, initiative that started probably like 10 years ago. Um, And of course, Tony has now passed, so God rest him. Um, But when, so the container park is completely private. It's owned by the downtown project. And if you take a look at it online, what it is is a kind of a a narrow U-shaped space that has container buildings, container-based buildings on both sides that house all kinds of shops and what all. And then there's a stage at the at, at the end of this narrow U-shape. And in the middle, there's a playground. It's a gorgeous playground. It's an awesome playground. But it's private. So anybody in the public is welcome to come in, but there are security guards. And some pe- it's so it's it's not a fully open to the public kind of location like a um a bryant park in chicago bryant parks in new york like a bryant park in new york or um the uh, millennium park in chicago which are you know just wide open anybody can come in anybody can use it anybody can enjoy it so i i just think that that's we, we sometimes we create an unintended consequence by making assumptions like oh the private sector will do it and they'll do it and it'll be great and it'll be just what we need and that may very well be true but it also may be true that it um, rejects or closes out or ostracizes some people and that might be people who've you know been there for a long time so i don't mean to be like debbie downer on 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 all this stuff using public assets is awesome um but we, I think we've learned over the last few years that um, 
what I uh, what I see through my eyes as a, an economic developer who is white, who's relatively privileged, who's et cetera, et cetera, that's not the same experience as many of the people in our communities. And it's very easy for me to not realize what their what the barriers are that a proposed project might create. And that so that goes back again to that, you know, really not just just public engagement, but kind of a public involvement, public co-creation. Uh, that would be the ideal, in my opinion. And I think there's some really good recent examples of how we've used um, public assets, Bob. Yeah, I sorry, I, I don't want to interrupt the flow. I just I've been sticking on this a bit since the last since before, the last point. Um, you know, I can't remember the source. I remember reading somewhere. I know this is in the U.S. I think Portland and I think Houston. Um, mm -hmm. They're mostly made up, for the most part, 40% of that land area is roadway. And, mm -hmm. you know, during the pandemic, we kind of started to see communities, for lack of a better word, like take sidewalks back or even streets. The whole yeah. Right? Dining, buskers, festivals. I'm curious as we return whatever normal might be. Um, since we talk about sort of you know, the community involvement, um, do you think this trend will continue? Do you think we're going to continue to see this leveraging of public assets for citizen experience? Or... Gara, you want to take a swing at that? I have, I've been talking about it. It's an open question. Yeah, well, Jimmy, I know that you've seen that in rural communities where, you know, organizations have taken over the streets to post events mm -hmm. Jimmy? with any kind of festival um yeah you know True. we put things around you know the downtown because you want people to shop in your downtowns and you know utilize downtown so we always um will close streets and have events mm -hmm. like that um bob are you talking more about like when you're talking about sidewalks you're talking about like like I was envisioning as you were talking, like literally people sitting on the sidewalks, like a restaurant expands to mm -hmm. outside to take up the sidewalk and have part of their restaurant out there. For the most part, I mean, I know in a lot of communities that's that's kind of been the norm pre-COVID, um, but I, you know, I've just been seeing a lot more use of that public space for walking or retail. Um, so again, I, I think I mentioned sort of like buskers. Um, yeah. You know. I guess I'm trying to think of an example in one of my communities. So I know, for example, in some of my smaller rural communities I've worked with, I've seen them go through revitalization. So they've gone through these revitalizations and they're literally either reducing parking spots or, you know, they're really, really trying to create this sort of walkable sense. Um, and, and so really that's my question of, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to consider those sidewalks and streets are public assets. You know, are we going to see this trend of continuing to leverage those uh, in that way for the local retailers for event? Does that help, Jimmy? I think I went in circles. Sorry. Does that help? Yeah, no, that helps. And I would say probably, um, you know, we've been trying to figure out some ways. So are like our park sets a couple blocks away from downtown. So we've had conversations around this walkability, you know, making your town more walkable. Um, you know, I live in a part of Texas where we drive everywhere. We don't walk. <laughs> but of course, when you get around Austin and some of the bigger cities, there's adequate space for walking and biking and all of those things. Um, 
so we've had conversations around how do we get some walkable space between like the park and the downtown so that you've got that back and forth you know you're sort of um, creating that space where you want people to utilize your park and you want people to come downtown and just sort of what does that look like and you see a lot of that happening in bigger places and so we just need to be more mindful of it um, in creating those spaces so I would say yes we will continue to see that Bob I think a lot of a lot of what I've been hearing um, you know, if you had asked me pre-pandemic, was this the direction that we were going more, more outside, more community, more engaged, et cetera, et cetera, I would have said yes. Um, that was because that's a trend that predates the pandemic. And my gut and I don't I don't did come back in 10 years and like yell at me if I got it wrong. But my gut is that people are still going to be seeking those kind of places they're going to be seeking what we used to call third places, the the places where you can connect or at least be in proximity to other people. Um, I think the big challenge is going to be, are those public spaces the same as what they were pre-pandemic? Do they need to be in different locations? We still don't know whether um, the, whether the pandemic has really uh, change the course of downtown, you know, that movement back to the central city. Um, so I, I, my big question right now is where are people going to be? And is that going to line up with where we have made our, made our investments to date? That's, Does that make sense? Yeah, I wanted to add to that. That's a really good point because I think when we think about you know, reimagining these assets and leveraging these assets and, you know, how, what is our community now post-pandemic? Inextricably, everyone has been changed psychologically. But you know what people I don't find to be talking about? And you're sort of touching on this, Dallas. You know, I think we get lost on thinking, how are we going to use our public assets as opposed to how is our next generation going to use our public assets, right? And I think, you know, when we think of, of how are these spaces used, are they going to be used in exactly everything you're saying, Della, is this, maybe that's my naivety. I don't know that I see a lot of conversations happening with, I think even beyond millennial, now at Gen X, like how, how do you, how do you as a community see you using this space here, which in turn, again, my naive belief is creates sort of investment traction. Oh, these downtown spaces are designed for mm -hmm. that generation. Anyway, that's my rant, but I wanted to really sort of agree with, with, with what you're, you're putting out there. Bob, can I add to that? Yes. So, uh, you know, uh, knock on wood, if all things go as planned, we're building a brand new Greenfield City around a transit hub, a regional uh, commuter train from scratch. And uh, we held a workshop uh, about smart cities in November. And one of the questions that I thought was brilliant um, was how do you engage future citizens, i.e. people that don't live where you're gonna build about what they want and what they need. So I just wanted to share that meaning yeah, absolutely. And those are Gen Z and Gen X and Echo and they're everybody, um, not to take away from the next generation. Uh, but, you know, these are the questions that we have to ask, right, is, is what is it that you're looking for and need in your community? And then I think the other challenge, because this is a 50 year project, is what do I imagine I want today and tomorrow? 
and how does that actually pan out? So uh, yeah, I just want to put that out there for, for fun and to build on, on Bob's uh, intellectual insight. The only thing I'd add, and I don't mean to be, I hope I'm not beating a dead horse, but they're not necessarily that, that Gen X, Gen Z, Echo, etc. They're not necessarily going to even look like us. That's going to be a much more diverse community. And they're going to be coming from a different economic background. And they're going to be having, bringing um, different definitions of what is a good place. And that, again, I'm go I go back again and again to that point where we, most of us here, are not, we're not really going to be the majority voice for a whole lot longer. So how do we design places that can truly nudge people to connect with people who are different from ourselves? This has been a big topic of conversation in the startup world. Um, where everybody bought into this idea of collision that came from Edward Glazer, um, that if you just have a place where, where smart, creative people can collide, that all this wonderful stuff will, will come out of it. Well, more recent research has shown that people only collide with other people who look a lot like them and sound a lot like them. And they don't necessarily collide with the person who has had a profoundly different experience and might have a very different insight. Del, I, I just, yeah, yeah, sorry, keep going. I didn't mean to interrupt. Keep going. No, no, I was, I was trying to figure out the next word. And oh, I okay, no problem. Uh, so I was at a, there was a three-day art tour uh, in the city this past weekend, and one of the first exhibits I went to, uh, the theme was, so Toronto is known as a diverse, multicultural city. <laughs> However, the curators of the, the art exhibit and the, and the features of the art exhibit were exactly what you're talking about. So, uh, and this isn't 100% true, but what, and these folks are from away, I think the Middle East. Uh, and what they found is like communities communicate and interact with each other, but diverse multi-ethnic communities don't necessarily. So. Part of their theme is, you know, what does diversity mean? How is it actually being um, executed or lived, maybe is a better term. So yeah, I think we have a, a long way to go and maybe maybe it's just time and generations because I am also aware of, you know, people from all, all sorts of different backgrounds that hang out together and mm -hmm. do things together. So I, I think there's was a bit of a sweeping generalization, but uh, probably uh, greater to the truth than sort of, you know, people from different backgrounds mingling all the time. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. No, I was just, I think that's great. Go ahead. Okay. Sorry, Della. Thank you. We are at 12.56, so I just mm -hmm. uh, you know, want to make sure that we're, we're staying on time. Uh, Della, I have one big question, I think, uh, for you before we sum up. But before we do, Laura, can we talk about what we're talking about on Friday and then next week? Absolutely. So on Friday, we're going to talk about professional development beyond the big organizations. What are some other ways that we're looking to learn and educate ourselves professionally? Um, and then next Wednesday, we're going to be talking about... Um, we're, we're, we're at a week-long series next week. Oh my gosh, it is already next week. <laughs> Holy cow. We're already there. We're already there. <laughs> 
<laughs> in order to celebrate the in-person annual DC, we're going to host a session every day um, at noon here network um starting with workforce development monday reviving and repurposing retail spaces for the arts on tuesday um alia abbas who was here earlier she's going to be talking about foreign fd pandemic um we're going to talk about the future of life science and then wrap it up with kind of a conference week debrief so um hopefully you'll be able to join us if not for all sessions, at least one or two next week. Thanks so much, Bob. Thank you. So it's 12.58, so I know I'm, I'm throwing this out last minute, Della, but really I'd love to get your insight for everyone in the room and listening. And I'll, and I'll try to keep it short. So uh, make it big. Like the answer is so, 42, right? Come on. Right. So what, what advice would you give to economic development professionals who are considering reimagining their public assets. We talked a lot about examples today. We've talked a lot about sort of journeys that you and Laura have gone through. But as an EcDev pro, this topic comes at our desk. One to three things that we should really start considering first. I think one of the biggest ones is to find is to find people who can be who are trusted leaders within communities that would otherwise get left out. And I mean, of, of, of the planning and the input process. Um, you don't need to go to the 10 people who always show up and scream at the microphone. But if, if you could find a local organization, a, um, um, a local pastor, somebody who is, who is connected to the community surrounding, I mean, every, every public asset is going to have basically a, a, a trade area, for lack of a better word. Who within that trade area is at risk of being left out and I would start there and one of the easiest ways that I've, I've discovered in, in my time has been to find the people who are kind of the connectors for that community so it might be the CEO of a CDC that serves neighborhood X it might be a church pastor like I said but having a trusted intermediary gets you to the point of being able to have that conversation and build that empathy with the people who, who might need to be using this space. On the other hand, you know, on the economic side, you've got to look at, you know, all of the, the factors associated with that. I mean, one thing that we often forget about is maintenance. So what kind of maintenance is going to be required? Who's going to do the maintenance? Who's responsible for that? Do we need to do some kind of clean and safe? situation where we've got you know ambassadors that we're paying and if we're paying them how are we paying them so I, th I think the, the main things I would say is build that relationship with the the, the portions of the community that maybe have gotten left out before um, really understand what the economic impact and the economic benefits are but public space isn't necessarily just a, a public it isn't necessarily just a, a, a money decision and then I would say the third thing I would really encourage some interactive um, charrette style um, decision making around what is that space going to look like what's in it what's not in it how do we how do we make sure that we're welcoming everybody while also excuse me 
keeping it safe, keeping comfortable, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say those three points would be my core. Wonderful. Thank you, Della. And thank you so much for bringing your expertise here today and sharing this conversation. Provided me with a lot of great insight and and just being a great conversationalist, Della. Thank you. It's been super (laughs) All right. Like I said, if Laura Laura asks me to do something, ain't no way I'm saying no. She wants me to Uh, jump off a bridge. Laura, Laura, I love you, but I ain't jumping off of bridges for you. Okay, hon? I appreciate that. Thank you. (laughs) We need you around to do great economic development work. Wonderful. So with that, I'm going to end the room now. Thank you everyone in the audience who's joined us uh, and of course on our stage who's joined us as regulars. We will see you all this Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern uh, for our next chat. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.